I'm very pleased that Dr. William Ming Lu is here with me, Daniel Elkert, on the clinical consult for an introductory level conversation about multicultural competence in telepsychology, and in particular for this episode on video teleconferencing. I have a few introductory remarks, but first, Dr. Liu is professor and chair of the Department of Counseling, Higher Education, and Special Education at the University of Maryland College Park, and a fellow of the American Psychological Association, Division 17 and 51, and editor of the journal Psychology of Men and Masculinities. He's also editor of several texts, including the Handbook of Multicultural Competencies in Counseling and Psychology from Sage Publishing, Culturally Responsive Counseling with Asian American Men, and among his other works is author of the forthcoming The Psychology of Privilege, White Supremacy, and Power. So welcome, Will, and thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Appreciate it. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Absolutely. Before we get going, I want to note for listeners that the conversation that we're going to have today does assume knowledge about multicultural responsiveness across various spectrums of, of human identity that many health service psychologists dedicate their careers to studying in a really in-depth way across identity, behavior, and experience. So these are areas like one's race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, ability status, or social class, which I know, Will, you are an expert in, that each have large literature bases that inform best practices to, to clinical care. But for this brief episode, my hope is that we can instead delve into just a few of the ways that multicultural competencies intersect with mental health care services when they're delivered through a kind of synchronous video teleconferencing services that so many psychologists are using today in their practice with, with patients and clients. With all that said, I want to transition now, Will, into a first question, which is just a real basic one, and that's, could you comment on, on some multicultural competency considerations that health service psychologists should be thinking about when they're providing uh, care via telepsych and video conferencing services? Sure. Thank you for those questions. I've been giving it a little bit of thought in terms of uh, some of the considerations that we have to make when we're working with diverse clientele and diverse meaning race and ethnicity and gender and certainly social class. And one of the things that uh, I came across very frequently when I was uh, doing some pro bono services was the issue of privacy and confidentiality. And this, this really has to do with telepsychology, telehealth, and uh, people's access to one, um, high-speed internet, and then two, having a private confidential space to be able to have these conversations. So often for many of us, we have professional spaces. We might have a small office, we might have a, an area in our home, apartment where we have some privacy, we've set that aside. And I think one of the things that we need to consider is that for some people that, that that's just not an option. So having a session in a, a relatively open place like a living room is not uncommon. The other piece too is also uh, people's access to high-speed internet. And so sometimes they might not have it in the home. They've, they use it outside at let's say a Starbucks. And so they might put on some ear pods and you might end up having a session um, out in, relatively out in a, in a public area. And often I check in with them about 
their their sense of confidentiality and security if they're okay with it. And I try to nudge them towards some place that's a little bit more private for them, for their for their safety. And what I found is surprisingly, they can if they if they can find a space, they will. Sometimes it's not a huge consideration. They really want the service. They really want the session. They they want to be able to talk to somebody. And in some ways, that also speaks to the larger cultural milieu about people's sense of privacy and confidentiality out in the open. For me, you know, privacy and confidentiality really means being in a closed space and a closed locked door. And I think we might also be experiencing generational shifts where in some ways that's, that, that is important, but I, but I also don't want to make it uh, a deal breaker, right? So it might not be, not, might not be the case. And the other piece that I think comes up is that for many people of color, communities of color, they have had poor experiences with uh, electronic surveillance. And so I think it is appropriate to, to consider, to think about, be sensitive to the ways that clients potentially hint at or talk about a kind of sensitivity to being online, to what they think, is, you know, they might be recorded. They're not really sure about where this goes or who has access to it. So um, reinforcing the idea of security, uh, spending some time talking about that through several sessions is important. And that goes to, of course, being able to develop a good, strong working alliance with your client. What can you tell me about some of those hints or cues that you alluded to a moment ago? My mind is brought to the reality that when it's through video conferencing, there's, there's far less nonverbal data that a psychologist will be looking at or taking in in real time. Mm-hmm. Or th- there could be. Yeah. I don't think it's out of the question that clients will joke about that the FBI or the CIA is listening in. And it's not, you know, I think for us as psychologists who are trained in to, when we hear that, we think paranoid schizophrenia. I think we just jump to that particular kind of diagnosis. And then we go down a particular road thinking that we need to investigate whether this person is schizophrenic or paranoid you know, have some, they have some kind of paranoid delusion. And that's not, that, that's not the case. I think there's a real history with black and brown and indigenous and uh, Asian communities where they've had a bad experience, if not a tremendously traumatic experience with electronic surveillance of, of multiple sorts. And so what you're listening for might be slight jokes. They might say, you know, you know, I hope this isn't going to the CIA or FBI. And I, and rather than sort of downplaying and laughing it off, which, which certainly is okay in some ways, but to reinforce the idea that this is just a, a medium that we're using, that it doesn't go anywhere, it's important that it, you know, they feel free to talk as much as possible. And that will just take some time to, to develop that kind of trust, uh, much like any kind of other therapy that you're going to be involved in. Trust is so essential. And as we're having this conversation, I'm, I'm putting the pieces together and I'm, I'm thinking about some realities where 
the health service psychology workforce is is predominantly white and and many psychologists practicing are relatively new mm -hmm. to the telepsych space so this is oftentimes a new modality of treatment and i'm thinking about those two pieces and some of the potential for maybe biased assumptions like what you were saying on sort of leaning into you know, what traditional uh paths when we're trying to make diagnoses when we hear something that might sound paranoid i mean that when we lean into that a couple of those factors this could lead to some inadequate care and that's where my mind is going with this conversation yeah it, absolutely and and the electronic medium certainly can play into that um, it it still is the case that uh, communities communities of color um, still get poor treatment more severe diagnosis or less severe diagnosis but they're not appropriate diagnoses. In other words, they're you know, getting diagnoses that really pathologize or diagnoses that completely minimize what's going on for them. And then the, the other part is that they just get poor continuity of care. So, and the research is still fairly strong, suggesting that that's still the case. Um, and that, that's, that's even when they can get into the office. There's still research that suggests that getting into an office is still racially bias as well towards what we consider to be uh, well-speaking English speaking um, uh, stereotyped white middle-class clients right so those are the folks that still get into the office they still get callbacks um, first so those biases still are part of it um, the other the other piece uh, also I think is that since we're doing telehealth and telepsychology and often this is going to happen in the client's home is that, uh, is that psychologists can read too much into the background. You know, again, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, which is you know, for a lot of us, we sort of curate our background. We make sure that we're in a blank space that is private and, and confidential. And often not, well, not all clients have that luxury. So uh, I think it's also important as a multicultural competency not to read too much into it, not to attribute too much to, let's say, a messy background or uh, whatever else might be going on, but, but really focusing on what's going on for the client and not trying to, well, like I said, read too much into it. And we would risk building trust and rapport. I think that's such a critical point here where when, you, when psychologists are dismissive of some of those hints or cues that you're talking about, I mean, it, it does, it jeopardizes the therapeutic alliance yeah. yeah, to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And clients coming in, um, clients coming into therapy who are not acculturated to or um, sensitive to therapy may not always, you know, uh, articulate very clearly their concerns. And so they'll try to hint at it. And I think, that's when the, the therapist, the psychologist needs to be uh, sensitive to those cues, those concerns. And that, again, that can be race and ethnicity, social class, men, especially, I think, again, there, there's already a, a stigma for a lot of men to uh, seek out mental health services. That's declining a little bit, but still, it's, it's still fairly uh, significant for a lot of men. And the electronic media 
it would be interesting to see what the research shows about like the electronic medium in terms of telehealth with men. There's, I've not seen any research just yet looking at that particular intersection between telehealth, uh, telepsychology and men, but we'll see what happens with the scholarship. Could we shift now to a cultural conceptualization of distress? I mean, that's a phrasing that I know has been included historically in the DSM, many clinics and psychologists infuse multicultural elements, you know, into their conceptualizations. And that's really regarded as a critical piece of care. And I want to build on what we've discussed so far, because psychologists are presented now with that need still to be using cultural conceptualizations as we build out our treatment regimens. But we've got all of these new nuances that the telepsych medium introduces that are, are really complex at times and combined with a lot of new learning or relearning that needs to happen to master the modality in and of itself, it can become rather nuanced. So I'm curious if you could just expand a little bit on how to go about building a, a strong and thorough cultural conceptualization when we're working with a new modality like like video teleconferencing? That is an excellent question. You know, it's a I, deep one, I know, but I'm just, I can't help myself. I'm curious what you'll say. It, it, it's, it's an important question around the cultural conceptualization and what we're going to do. Um, the, you know, we're, we're just in a place where face-to-face psychotherapy, where we were getting accustomed to it, much more comfortable with this cultural conceptualization. And now the, for the most part, most of the, most of the world that has access to electronic media is thrown into this, this telehealth, telepsychology medium. And the cultural conceptualization is going to be a problem. I, 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 I think it just will be because we already know that when it comes to building a working relationship and building trust, a lot of what we try to do as therapists and also as clients too, is that we try to read off the body cues and sensitivity of the, what's going on interpersonally with the, with our, the other person in the relationship in the room, for instance. And the electronic media makes that much more difficult. I mean, the prompting of when to speak and how to speak and how to adjust yourself when it comes to silences is all sort of, is just, um, is much more challenging. The other piece too, and this goes to the therapist side, is that I think um, there's much more wear and tear on the therapist sitting in front of a monitor. There's just, you know, it, it requires much more energy to attend to a person's nonverbal cues than uh, you ever did face face to face. And so there is some wear and tear in terms of what, what I call wear and tear, sort of um, just uh, fatigue that comes from sitting in front of um, uh, a camera and trying to do psychotherapy. So in terms of the cultural conceptualization, I have some considerations. I think, you know, we definitely need to build in more time between clients. We need to build in more time for a therapist to be able to readjust themselves so they're not sitting in front of a camera all, all day, clients back to back. I used to be able to, you used to be able to do something like that, maybe face to face, but on a camera, just, it, I think it just requires a lot more emotional energy to attend to people's nonverbals. 
And I think what happens is that when people, uh, clients, uh, well, when therapists get fatigued, they're more likely to get very narrow focused, maybe make, start making mistakes around diagnoses, conceptualization, maybe in disregard culture as a significant component in a client's life. So those are all things that are just part of our electronic world um, that go into cultural conceptualization. Well, I, I think about a specific behavior like eye contact, which mm-hmm. so many psychologists will will talk about that. Eye contact differs for different people, mm-hmm. differs across groups, it differs across neurodiversity. There are so mm-hmm. many different ways that eye contact, as just one example, can play out. Mm-hmm. It becomes much more nuanced because it's forming eye contact via video teleconferencing is a, is a very different thing than in vivo. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, even um, getting accustomed to where to look, either looking on the screen to your, the image that's being reported back or looking into the camera. Those are, those are practices that have to be nurtured that have to be developed um, either by the client and, or the therapist, they don't come naturally, right? So when I'm making a presentation or talking in a meeting or something, and I'm trying not to look at the image on the screen, I'm looking at a, a green dot that's showing back in front of me and trying to disregard everything. <laughs> so it's a, it's a different, it's just a different approach. I'm not looking at somebody's eyes because I'm expecting that you're looking at my eyes and I need to be looking uh, in the camera. So they're all different kinds of practices. Uh, I think some people are certainly going to be much more accustomed to it, much more comfortable with it. I think uh, there are folks that have grown up with media in their lives and a lot, a lot, a lot more facile with it, and a lot more comfortable with it. And others like myself, who find myself in a generation where we like media, we're you know we're we're quick adopters to it, and we try to make it work as as best we can. And then there are some that just are going to fight all the way through this particular modality. And that's, it just is what it is. So there are a lot of positives though, with telepsychology in particular video teleconferencing that I want to make sure we can dedicate a few minutes to also. So walk me through a few of the, of the, of the benefits to the approach that you see. Well, definitely. I think you have a much wider reach in terms of being able to get to people who can't get to your office or get to the location that you need to. I think, it works uh, potentially works a lot better with folks with any kind of mobility issues that they, they just can't get around to your office as well. I think there are also folks that just feel more comfortable being at home and wanting to do telehealth and that, that works to their benefit as well. And potentially if it works out well, it could also cut down on some of the costs because, you know, face to face, therapy requires you to potentially be in an office and having all sorts of costs that are associated with it and telehealth uh, may be able to cut, cut down on some of those overhead costs, right? Because we're just, we're not paying for some things that we used to pay for. So, and those potentially could be benefits that could be rolled back to the, to the client, right? So there are a lot of benefits. I, when we were in Iowa, I think telehealth and telepsychology were really important because you could see somebody across the state, right? That's 250 miles away. You could see somebody doing therapy 
And in a place like Iowa or the Midwest and other places where potentially a third of the year there's inclement weather, that is a great benefit for folks because you don't want to put them out on the road. And that was something that was an important consideration, for instance, with veterans who are traveling to the Iowa City VA and, you know, they lived on the other side of the state, it would be easier just to get them into a room near their city, near their home, so they didn't have to come in to, uh, to do their appointment. So there, there are a lot of benefits of telehealth and telepsychology. I'm in, during this pandemic and I'm doing, I'm seeing my primary care physician online and using it. So I like it. I think it's, it's actually fairly convenient. There is a, a strong convenience factor. There's a convenience, yeah. And, and it works out. I mean, unless I'm, you know, there's something really bad going on with me, I'll go into the office. But for checkups and things like that, they can, you know, they can assign labs and other things. And I can go closer to my home. I can check in about something I might have a, a worry about. And it's, it's a lot easier also to schedule and get in. And I don't feel like I'm spending my entire day at a doctor's office or even half a day at the doctor's office. So. And for clients and patients who are, who are navigating and balancing multiple life roles across work and family and social, there's a real, there's a, there's a real usefulness to that sort of convenience and accessibility that you're highlighting. I mean, we, we've been so far talking about a lot of these really great multicultural competencies. We've hit on some of the strengths and challenges. I think these are all really essential points to be emphasizing. I do also want to make sure we we discuss some good resources and best practices for folks to turn to that are, uh, are, are reputable sources of information. So when you're looking to do this type of work, what types of sources do you do you consider or do you turn to? Well, one of the one of the sources that just came out is the uh, APA guidelines, the new multicultural competency guidelines, I think, are a good place to go. Those are the revisions from the earlier guidelines, and so that's a good resource to have. And uh, divisions like Division 17 uh, for counseling psychology and other divisions I know are doing a number of different webinars. Many of them are free webinars that uh, people can participate in, a lot of them around cultural competency. So the webinars are a great opportunity to again, conveniently meet with experts in the field and talk to them and listen to their perspective about how to do um, psychotherapy in this, new, in this new setting. The best part about it in some ways is that all of us are in the same situation. I mean, there's just no variability. I mean, that's, it, you, you're never, you're probably never gonna see this in our lives, hopefully again, where we're all doing the same, we're all forced into the same modality in many ways. And so, there's a lot of work. I think there's there's a lot of work being done research-wise and practice-wise in terms of how to do this well. And um, that's exciting because I think we're all committed to doing this well, helping clients and making sure that we provide the best service, best counseling, best psychotherapy possible for our clients. In addition to the multicultural guidelines, APA also has guidelines for the practice of telepsychology that are good. Mm-hmm. To, to consult as well. And I, in our clinical consult series here at the National Register, we've put together a number of other episodes that speak to various issues in the practice of telepsychology that I would encourage listeners to take a listen to. And I also know that the, the trust 
Practice and Risk Management Association or Trust Parma has prepared a lot of relevant resources on their website also, including some draft informed consent documents that are a good place to start to consider. Will, uh, you know, at the start of our conversation, we noted that there are many different directions we, we could have taken this conversation, and I think that's still the case. But I, I think we did, we covered a lot of ground with respect to some of the basics of multicultural competence and telepsychology. And I, I want to thank you for taking time to join me today. And also remind our listeners that this and all episodes of the Clinical Consult, which are brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't provide formal advice for clinical practice or provide evidence of continuing education. Great. Thank you for having me on.